Appreciate that introduction, man. That was probably, I'm wondering who he's going to have preach here. <laughs> I just want to say, first of all, thank you to Pastor Josh, Elizabeth, and True Vine, and all of you here for hosting us this weekend. And it's been a few years since we've been back, and we celebrate this marvelous facility that the Lord has given to you. Look what the Lord has done. Can you say hallelujah for that? Secondly, I, I, I uh, travel all the time, and this worship team is second to none anywhere I've ever been. They just are just uh, uh, about as clear and sharp as anybody I've ever heard. And we have them, like I said, in Berkeley Springs to come to our youth camp. And then, of course, our youth were here not too long ago to celebrate with yours because we have a church that is so similar and a family that is so similar to this that uh, I almost think we're related. Hallelujah. I came, I think so too. Hallelujah. We came, or I came from a family of seven children, and then we begin to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish. And there's about 50, so I lost count. There's 50 some or 60 some of us now. And uh, we just, my mom just had her first great, great grandchild come on the scene so uh it's uh, i just feel like family here it's sunday morning and i'm gonna try not to be too lengthy and and too heavy so i won't stretch you real bad this morning but if you'll open your bible or your device whichever the case may be uh, it's amazing to me uh, we have everything that you could imagine at our fingertips in these devices and we have access to every book that's ever been written almost in every library all kind of research information, every Greek, Hebrew, messages and sermons, and we play Candy Crush with it. <laughs> Help us, Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. I was just trying, I was just killing time to get this up because I, I push buttons and everything disappears. And my granddaughter says, Papa, you don't have to do this. You can do like that. But when I do like that, it all disappears and I can't find it again. But I'm opening to Luke, the 25th chapter, Luke, the 10th chapter. And I'm going to begin reading in verse number 25. I want to take a familiar uh, portion of Scripture this morning and just share some, I think, some very practical things with you. And then I've got about a six-hour drive home today. But verse 25 says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answers right, this do, and thou shalt live. Now let me, before I uh, get down into the latter part of this, let me just unpack this for a moment. How many know, when I, I, I like to slow down and read some stuff, but first of all, how many know this was a lawyer that was talking to Jesus? Now, not a lawyer like we think today of a secular lawyer, but these were lawyers of the law of Moses. These were the guys that knew the details and every jot and tittle of the law and had literally made the law, they'd watered it down to the point where it was manageable that made them look holy. How many know that's what religion does is it makes people look holy and it makes you look down on other people and say, I thank God I'm not like that sinner. Come on, help me just a little bit. But when he says to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How many know, first of all, you don't do anything to inherit. Somebody dies and leaves you something. Now, I wish you'd touch your neighbor this morning and say, somebody died and left you something. It might be good if you read your copy of the will. Because if you don't read your copy of the will, you're going to settle out of court. Touch your neighbor and say, "By God, I got an attorney on retainer this morning. His name is Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he's never lost a case. Hallelujah. But he, how many know that this is really, how many know when Father wrote, let me just say it like this. How many know Father wrote an Old Testament? Or, or had people write it. How I many know that's his testament and his will? He wrote a will one day. And then he had a son. And that son was such an incredible businessman that father got richer. And father had so much fun with his first son. He said, I think what I'm going to do is just bring many sons into glory. And since I have a whole lot more children and I've got a whole lot richer, let me revise the will and write a New Testament and will. Come on, somebody. 
and let me include them in this will. You know, one of the key or several of the key words in the book of Galatians are, are not words like achieve, they're receive. Hallelujah. And he talks about in the book of Hebrews, but how many know the book of uh, the, the New Testament is, if you will, it is God's last will and testament. But then the writer of the book of Hebrews said, without the death of the testator, the will is not effective. So he wrapped himself in human flesh and came and died so you could get what's in the will. That's pretty powerful, but this is really powerful. He got back up from the dead to be the administrator of his own will to make sure you get what he said you could have. And this might stretch you a little bit. You get ready to stretch your muscles like I uh, say. I'm, I'm getting close to getting a body just like his. He stole my body. Hallelujah. But I've lost a little weight, and I'm starting to look pretty good. I think, hallelujah, for 62. Hallelujah. First thing you know, I'll be wearing skinny jeans. <laughs> hallelujah. You all be calling me Skinny Lenny. That would be my new nickname right now. Hallelujah. Now I lost what I was going to say. Hallelujah. But how many know, uh, well, I was going to say this. I said, he said unto them, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let me tell you that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in the New Testament. But they are still in the Old Covenant. And if you don't realize that, you're going to misunderstand some stuff that Jesus says at times. Because how many know one thing he says, for instance, is if you don't forgive, it won't be forgiven you. How many of Jesus says that? The Apostle Paul says after the cross, he says, we forgive even as God for Christ's sake has already forgiven you. I mean, under the law, you have to forgive in order to get forgiven. But under grace, you forgive because you've already been forgiven. And as Josh said a while ago, how many know under the old covenant, you give in order to get blessed. But in the new covenant, you give because all, all blessing has been given to you in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. And all grace has been given to you. And so uh, when he says, what must I do? When he asked Jesus in Matthew, they're still dealing with the old covenant. And there are very much things that are, are happening that, that, that are happening under the old covenant paradigm. You know, the reality of it is, is I was in the ministry for years before I realized that the new covenant is not an addendum to the old one. In other words, it is not Jesus plus the law or Jesus plus the rules. It's a completely different covenant. This may shock some of you, but the reality of it is, unless you're a Jew, God never gave you the law. Well, I got it one all right. <laughs> Romans 2 says that for the Gentiles which do not have the law. In other words, that was not their covenant. How I many know oh, God doesn't deal with you based on somebody else's covenant? That'd be like you making requirements on, on me. If I don't have a covenant with you, I, I have a covenant with the bank. I owe them some money. <laughs> and, uh, but how I many know oh, you can't collect what I owe them? That's not our covenant. That's the covenant I have with them. How I many know oh, the covenant that God had with them was with Israel and he was coming to bring a new covenant. Hallelujah to the house of Israel. And he was about to give us, man, what a better covenant. And then you start reading the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, which is one of the most incredible treaties of new covenant truth. And he starts telling you that the new covenant's better than Moses. It's better than angels. It's better than Joshua. It's better than an old tabernacle. It's better than the blood of bulls and goats. It's a better priesthood. It's got a better sanctuary. It's got better promises. It's got better faith. It's got a better promised land. It's got a better city. It's got a better country. Hallelujah. Everything about it's better. And I don't know why people would fight anything. You know, I tell you, sometimes I look at something and I say, man, why is is it that people want to fight good news? Because I'm just really discovering in my later years, the good news really is good news. People come to church this morning all over America, and they will hear somebody preach from the wrong covenant. And they will hear the bad news behind the bad news, and they will leave their beat down and discouraged because they think they're disqualified and ready for the judgment of God to fall. That's not the good news. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. It's the proclamation of good news. And for the life of me, I can't understand why you can't just tell people the, the, the real truth and they get excited about it. They want to fight you because they'd rather have some of these old ways. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. And so, you know, I think as we start to understand some of that, we, we need to get excited about the good news because the good news is really better than you think. I've been going to several places recently, some very, very large places, and, and the pastor told me, I first started listening to you seven years ago on television, and he said, what I did 
was he said, I went in my office and we would lock the door. He said, it'd be three or four of my closest inner circle staff. He said, we would lock the door like we were having a secret meeting and say, is it possible that the good news could really be this good? Hallelujah. And he said, we had to almost hide in secret to share good news with one another. Now he's sharing it now in a much larger Hallelujah, because they realize the good news really is good news, and this really is the gospel. Hallelujah, and maybe we've never preached the gospel. Hallelujah, because I'd like to leave the house of God edified, encouraged, built up, and come on, ready, ready to take hell with a water pistol, if that's the case, as my mom would say. Hallelujah. And so, you know, we, it's something, we, we, we were doing some stuff on television not too long ago, and every now and then, we get, I mean, we get uh, Jason, my son, works for me. He, he fields all the hate mail I get, sometimes some of the calls, but some of it gets to me because it affects me a little bit. I mean, when people write you hate mail, it might affect you a little bit. And somebody called about something we were talking about that was just incredibly good news, and she was all tore up because I was talking about we have a future. And that the kingdom of God is ever increasing. And she, 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 she calls Jason. Jason answers the phone. She said, well, if we don't have seven years of hell on earth to look forward in the future, if this thing's not going to fall apart, if everything's not going to get worse and worse, and she started, she just broke down. She said, what do we got to look forward to? It's like just the possibility that I could be right might be pretty good news because after, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Wouldn't that be good news? That the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the earth and all they that, wouldn't that be good news to you? Hallelujah. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the, the Deuteronomy begins to come to pass? I want to give you the days of heaven on earth. That Wouldn't it be nice if Genesis 9, verse 6 and 7 from the Message Bible, he got off the boat and said, listen, this is my deal. I want you to live life lavishly on the earth. I planted a garden in the beginning of this thing and planted it eastward. All you had to do is get out of bed in the morning, say just another day in paradise, and everything you need is divine supplied and God walks with you, talks with you in the cool of the day and you got a false identity and believed a lie and you've been running from me ever since but what I really want for you is the best life on the planet. Wouldn't that be incredibly good news? That I'm not out to punish you. Come on, I'm out to, I'm out to, to, to save you from what's destroying you. Wouldn't that be good news? Hallelujah. I get excited about good news. I finally enjoy preaching because I got some good news. I'm not getting far here this morning. I better go keep going because I got a long drive today. But when he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I shared some of this the first night, and I want to just unpack it just again because I want, to, I want you to see something that I think is real powerful. Say this with me before I, let me preface what I'm going to say by saying this again to, this morning. He believes, say this with me, he believes eternal life includes going to heaven when you die. We got that settled? So I'm not taking heaven from you. You got that? But this word eternal life, and I, I saw, I read a, a theologian, and he read it from a translation. He said, must, what must I do? Reading Luke 10, he said, what must I do to inherit? The word eternal here is the Greek word aeonian or eon, or has to do with an age. And one translation literally says, what must I do to inherit the life of the coming age? And it includes going to heaven, but realize that when Jesus is in Matthew here and Luke's gospel, they have come to the end of an old covenant age. And they have come to the beginning of a new covenant age. And the age that was coming upon the scene was a life that Jesus said, let me define for you what eternal life is. He said, this is life eternal that you would know God the Father and the Son. In other words, the life of the coming age was a life of freedom from the tyranny of law and legalism, but it was a life that was full of relationship with Father God, not as an austere old man on a Victorian chair with a club, but living life in the context of sonship instead of under the old covenant, you were a slave and a servant. How many know you were slaves and servants under the old covenant? And so what he's talking about, the life of the coming age is a life Life lived in freedom where you inherit this life hallelujah see cause the old the the new covenant is not about a law you have to keep it's about receiving a life that will keep you under the old covenant you are motivated by fear and in the new covenant you're motivated by faith 
Under the old covenant, it was law. In the new covenant, it's love. Are you hearing where I'm coming from? Hallelujah. Under the old covenant, you had to achieve. In the new covenant, you simply receive this life. And so he's talking to him about a life that's about to come on the scene. And a life in this new covenant day, or this age that was upon them, one one covenant was fading away, and another one was coming rapidly on the scene. And they were fighting. I'm telling you, these religious lawyers were fighting this tooth and nail. And, you know, they're fighting. You know, help me, Holy Ghost, this morning. People that kind of fight a lot of the things that we're saying sometimes, I, I, I say to them, How's that? I'm like Dr. Phil these days. It's like, how's that working for you? You know, they want everybody else to keep the rules, but they've never kept them all either. And we preach, we pick and choose the parts of the law that fit our culture. And we call that the gospel. Well, you're all awful quiet this morning. When I was growing up, Pastor Barbara, we used to talk, I mean, it was, it was real bad then about really, you know, uh, Legalism had to do a lot with your, our outfits and, you know, what we wore. And, you know, people going to go to hell over an outfit and makeup. It's all, you know, them preachers that come in and say, you want me to name sin. Ah, you got to hack when you do that. I'm going to name it for you this morning. Ah, some of you women came in here with makeup on your Jezebel face. Ah, head levelers on your head. Ah, Eating devil food cake, deviled ham, deviled eggs. You want God. You got to stretch God out. On one side in the world, on the other, and you want to compromise. And you got to shake your jaws when you say compromise. Somebody said you do that real good. I say such were some of us. And I thought, my, this must be, this God must be really serious about fashion if he's going to send people to hell over an outfit. Billions of years over an outfit. And it began to warp my mind. My wife was telling me the other day when she was five or six years old, she found a pair of scissors and cut her bangs. And she said, when I went to church that Sunday morning, my preacher told me I was going to go to hell. Can you imagine your pastor telling you you're going to hell because you cut your bangs and don't think that's going to warp the... No wonder our churches are empty. They're disenfranchised with a God who they think hates them instead of really his head over heels in love with him. And he just doesn't love you when you're doing good. He loves you all the time. Hallelujah. And he has their best interest in mind. And he's a good father. And when you're real, he will correct you. And he will do, because what he's trying to do, just like any kind of a father, is to give you the best life on the planet. And so when I got old enough to read and study the word for myself, and I probably, I've told these stories all over the country, but man, they preached against devil food cake. They preached against physical education when I was growing up. It was because it was a sin to take, to wear shorts. I jeopardized my high school diploma because we had to opt out of physical education because it was a sin to play sports. It was a sin to wear a wedding band. Everything you could think of was a sin. I'm a victim of that message today. I think it would have been good if I was able to take (laughs) Because bodily uh, exercise does profit a little. I hear Josh saying amen to that. See, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And what I, what I began to, I, I got old enough, you know, so I, my pastor would say, I, I'm thinking if, if devil's food cake is going to take me to hell, that's the least of my problems right now. So I'm probably not going to make it. And I got saved every Sunday morning and sometimes gave him a midweek courtesy dip. And they'd say, we're going to sing the first and last stanza just as I am without one plea. And they're lying when they say that because 37 stanzas later, if you don't come, they're going to come get you. Would you come? Would you come? And then they don't want you just like you are because if they did, they'd left you there last week. It's a trick just as I am. I preached a message and had a bunch of people gave their heart to the Lord one Sunday morning. As I'm walking out the door, they had these people in the room signing them up for every kind of class. And I heard some guy say, I didn't want to buy a timeshare. I wanted to give my heart to Jesus. I mean, it was like a high-pressure salesman in there, you know? The guy said, I just want to get my heart to Jesus. Can I? <laughs> I mean, something wrong with this thinking. And so, you know, I said, then my pastor said to me, I, I probably shouldn't tell, because I've told these stories all over the world, but we preached against Coca-Cola. We preached against coffee. 
And so I'm out with my pastor, and I said, Pastor, what about Coca-Cola is going to take me to hell? And he couldn't even talk to him in his regular voice. He talked to him in his preacher voice. He said, son, that Coca-Cola, you got to drink it from a bottle. <laughs> and it's liable to ruin your testimony. So you just need to abstain from the very appearance of evil. <laughs> and I'm thinking, why not preach against root beer then? That's a brown bottle. So I said that to him. Why not preach against root beer? He said, son, that Coca-Cola is shaped like a woman and it's liable to make you lust. And I'm 16 years old and I said, thanks for that image. So I struggled with Coke till I got in my 40s. And then they came out with three liter bottles and I got over it. Hallelujah. If you don't enjoy the message, enjoy the comedy. Hallelujah. <laughs> but the absurdity of some of the stuff we've sent to people. And so as a young man, I got to the place I thought, if I'm going to go to hell over a Coca-Cola piece of devil's food cake or playing sports, there's a pretty good possibility that I'm not going to make it. I'm going to bust hell. And I could see myself taking the nest tea plunge in the lake of fire. And then I came to this conclusion after getting saved a couple hundred times and baptized every way you could imagine. I thought to myself, if I'm going to go to hell, at least I'm going to enjoy the ride. And I walked away from what I thought was God, but I didn't really reject God. I rejected religion. Good for me. I didn't know I was rejecting religion. I thought I was rejecting God, but he never left me. Matter of fact, I, I couldn't understand it for a long time. Here's why I didn't get the same feeling I got when I thought I came back to the Lord. That didn't get the same feeling because once I got born again, I was born again. I, I'll leave that be. Hallelujah. But what I begin to realize is, wait a minute. Hallelujah. This thing is not about a bunch of rules. And I'm not telling you it's all right to live any way you want to. I'm trying to tell you when you get this life in you, the life that you receive will make you love God. It'll make you love your neighbor. It'll give you a life that is a quality of life that's like the days of heaven on earth. A life lived in the context of sonship with a father and a son that you live out of relationship with him. And all of a sudden, this God who I came to know when I was a kid, who I didn't even like I was scared to death of him I started really getting to know the one that I met at an altar when I was nine years old when I didn't know a lot about God and I found out he was really like I thought he was that he really did love me and him and I come on somebody I could have relationship and the more I started to find out how he really was the more I started to file head over heels in love with him and the more I talk about him the less it seems like church people know who I'm talking about but he's a good God. I wish you'd slap your neighbor saying he's good all the time. He is not mad at you. He is mad about you. Hallelujah. And he does everything to have your best interest in mind. He is not out to destroy you. He is out to save you. He is my deliverer. He is my savior. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he did that so he could get closer to you. So it removed your consciousness of sin and purge your conscience from an evil conscience. So that you could draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So once I, I'm not getting very far here this morning, but when I began to look at some of this stuff and, and I started thinking, well, listen, I started thinking, is, where did they get some Bible to teach some of this from? And then let me say this, I, I respect and appreciate my roots. I do. I really thank God because they did, and, and as well as me as well, we did the best we could with what we knew in the revelation that we had at that time. But most of those guys were preaching something they heard somebody else say. They had a sixth and seventh grade education, and they just preached something they heard somebody else say without researching or looking in the Word to see how this thing could work. So I went over to the sea. Where, where did they get these texts? I mean, I almost feel like I need to apologize to women because they were really abused because they couldn't wear makeup. Could you know? They couldn't wear anything that looked stylish, and it was like you know we robbed you of your self-esteem and looks. And marriages were robbed. See, I believe you hear the gospel, you get your looks back, your wife back, your money back, your kids will come back, your joy will come back, your peace will come back. God will restore your soul. Hallelujah. Now, my wife is about five foot one, blonde hair, green eyes, drop dead gorgeous. And when I met her, I said she was absolutely a knockout, still is. 
I showed somebody a picture of her holding the three grandbabies. They said, is that one of your daughter-in-laws? I said, no, that's, that's my wife. They said, that is not your wife. I said, well, I, sovereign grace. That's all I could tell you. Hallelujah. And, uh, but I said to her, when I met you, you was drop-dead gorgeous. Whatever it takes to keep looking like that, you don't even have to ask me. Here's the MasterCard. Don't leave home without it. Now, she told me a couple of years back, she said, it's cost me a whole lot more for, you, for me to look like that. But I said, I don't care. I'd still enjoy it. You hear where I'm coming from? But so I went to the book. I wanted to see where did they get all this stuff to preach from? Because it was most of what we call the gospel is cultural stuff. And when you start traveling the world, you start finding out what, what they think is sin in America. They don't think is sin in Germany. The, the Germans think it's a sin for women to shave under their arms. Now, I can't imagine you go to hell over that, but nevertheless, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that's cultural. Are, are you hearing where I'm coming from? And I remember when they preached against certain kinds of dresses, and then they came out with maxi dresses, thought that would satisfy everybody. And then when Hollywood started wearing maxi dresses, then it was worldly for you to wear maxi dresses, so you couldn't satisfy nobody. So I, got, I went to the Word to see where this is found at, and I went to the book of, I call it the book of Deuteronomy. Because it's more about what you Deuteronomy than you do Deuteronomy. And I found a text. Women don't dress in men's apparel. And then we get into legal debates. The lawyers show up. Well, Brother Howes, these are not men's apparel. These are women's. I'd like to see you in a pair of them. And I'm thinking, well, I don't think you'd want to see me in a pair of black pump high heels. That was meant to be a joke, but that was way too much for imagery there, right? Hallelujah. <laughs> I know you're wondering where I'm headed with this. And so the whole point was women don't dress in men's apparel, so we get legal debates about what's men's apparel, what's not. But see, what we don't realize, and I never heard anybody ever preach this, is the verse right below that in Deuteronomy says, don't mingle your garment, your thread in a garment with diverse kinds of thread. Do not mix wool and linen together. But I never heard a preacher ever preach against a polyester rayon blend or wool and linen. He had a wool suit on, cotton underwear, and according to his view, he was headed to hell in a handbasket. I never, same chapter says you can't touch a pig. That means you can't play football. It's a pig skin. You can't eat a pork chop, a piece of sausage, or sausage gravy, or a piece of bacon. And some of you sitting up in here this morning with bacon all on your breath. Oh, I know I'm preaching good. In other words, we pick and choose the parts of the law that fit our culture, and we call that the gospel. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that I'm free from the law of Moses. Come on, hallelujah, because if you can't have coffee and you can't have sausage gravy, homeboy can't be coming to this church anymore. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. And so I'm glad that, see, it was for freedom. And what we don't realize is that some of the freedom that we set free from is not just worldly bondage. It is, it was religious bondage. And Jesus was leading a revolution of freedom, not lawlessness, because I'm trying to be balanced here this morning. Repentance is not just what you turn from. It's what you turn toward. And I'm not getting anywhere near what I thought I would here this morning. But when you turn from law and you turn from legalism and you turn from an old covenant, you need to turn toward the Lord. If you don't, you're going to be an untoward generation. And I know that's a play on words, but it's what you turn towards. And what I begin to see is a lot of people turn from law and a lot of people turn from religion, but they didn't turn. In other words, they begin to lead a rebellion instead of, of a reformation. And I don't want to go down in history as leading a rebellion and not a reformation. And I'm, I, I, I say clearly, I'm a grace preacher, but I'm about hard to, anymore about afraid to use that label because there's so much stuff thrown under the guise of grace that, you know, hallelujah, that I'm about afraid to identify from some of it because I don't believe that the grace will become greasy and lawless. I believe grace gives you the space and the freedom to develop a relationship, to learn how to hear from the Spirit of God, and to be, learn how to be governed by the Spirit. And let me just use this point. Let me say this to you, that Egypt, this, the children of Israel came out of Egypt, and the Lord began to say some things to me recently about Egypt, and he said to me out of Revelation, the 11th chapter, let me calm down. My granddaughter says, Pap, you got to just calm down. Revelation 11, verse 8 says, and their dead bodies, talking about the two witnesses, which I believe pictures the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. 
It says, their dead bodies shall lie on the street of the great city, which is spiritually called, watch this, Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And I've read that scripture hundreds of times, and it never dawned on me because we read over so fast that our Lord was not crucified in Sodom or Egypt. He was crucified in Jerusalem. But the Holy Spirit has taken his finger and he said, what you thought was Egypt is not Egypt. That the, the Egypt that I'm talking about is a spiritual place and Jerusalem was the centerpiece of that bondage because it was the centerpiece of Judaism and Old Covenant law. And what he's saying is, I'm going to deliver you this time and another exodus is coming. But it's not going to be out of a physical bondage in some Egyptian land. It's going to be out of the bondage of religion for whom the such sets free will be free indeed. And I'm going to lead you out of that and into a fullness of a promised land. In Hebrews chapter 4, the promised land is not heaven. And it's not a piece of real estate in the Middle East. It is rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, where you learn to live out of a life and all of a sudden there's an outflow of milk and honey. But I started seeing these patterns when God started to deliver the children of Israel. I may not get to the, finish this text this morning. But when God began to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt, he delivered them by the blood of a spotless lamb. And they came up out of Egypt delivered by the blood. And they crossed, the, they, came, they were delivered by blood. Then they came to the bank of the Red Sea. And three to six million people were baptized into the sea in the right of the new covenant said they were baptized into Moses into the sea. So they're blood bought and water baptized. Then they come up out of the Red Sea water baptized and exactly 50 days after the lamb and the blood was put on the doorpost of the house and the lamb was taken inside the house. They're exactly 50 days in the wilderness and 50 days into this journey a cloud comes down on the mountain and God gives them the law exactly 50 days. It's not an accident. The moment God gave them the law, 3,000 people dropped dead. Fast forward to the new covenant. John the Baptist looks up over the bank of the Jordan River. He said, right there's the real lamb of God. You thought that was the lamb. That ain't the lamb, but this is the real lamb of God. And the real exodus I'm about to bring you out from underneath of is a hallelujah, as I'm about to bring you into an exodus out of an old covenant into a new covenant and into the kingdom of God. I want to bring you into a promised land called Christ where there's rest and there's an outflow of milk and honey. There's not something you manufacture, but something flows out of inside of you. Under the old covenant, you are conformed. In the new covenant, you are transformed. Make no mistake about it. Those of us who have preached grace, at least me, I believe God wants to change and transform people's lives. But what we've done, see, law can make you change your behavior. And it's easy to default back to our default setting and preach some law to get folks to behave. But law can change your behavior, but only grace can change the heart. And if the heart ever changes, come on, you will behave not because you got a church sheriff or somebody threatening you with something, but because God has really shifted your heart. You will give an offering, not because you have to, but because your heart gives. You'll make it to the house of God, not because you're afraid you're going to go to hell, but because you're in love with the one that you want to spend some time with. And if we ever get our hearts turned. Watch this in the new covenant. John the Baptist said, right there is the real lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus walks down over the bank of the Jordan River. He's about to lead another exodus. And 50 days, exactly 50 days after the children of Israel left Egypt, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai, God gives them the law. I would say this as well because I don't really have time to develop this thought. God never wanted to give them the law. That was their demand on God. God wanted to bring them out on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant which only required faith that you believe. God wanted to make a whole nation of priests out of them where everybody would have access and personal relationship to God. He said to them, I'm going to make them a nation of priests. I'm going to be to them a God. They're going to be to me a people. I can see God excited for the first time. I'm going to restore relationship where everybody has access to me. But Galatians 3 said the law was added because 
of a transgression. It was not the transgression of Adam alone that the law was added because it was a transgression that took place right after they came up out of the Red Sea when the people forfeited a grant covenant for a kinship covenant and said to Moses, we're afraid of him. You go talk to him and whatever he says to you, we'll do it. And if we do it, it will be our righteousness. Wrong answer. Deuteronomy 5 is the backstory. God said, because you said in your tents, we're afraid of them. I hearkened to your voice and I gave. And how many know what they were doing is they were forfeiting a personal relationship with God for a mediator system. And God said, if you don't want personal relationship, then send Moses and Aaron up the mountain and I'll speak to them and they'll tell you what to do. And I'll give them rules and I'll give them laws because if you don't have a relationship, you need rules. And the less relationship you have, the more rules you need. Are you hearing where I'm coming from? But hundreds of years later, when Jesus is on the cross, how many know once he begins to restore us back to that original covenant, the Bible said that that covenant was added until, say until, that's a time word, until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. I'm thankful today that the law, hallelujah, was fulfilled, not done away with, fulfilled in Christ, just like I, I'm not going to get to my text, so I'll just forget about trying to get back here and just preach this this morning. It would be like I entered into a covenant with Josh and I said to him, man, I want to buy your truck. I'm going to give you $25,000 for that truck or whatever we agree on. So, And we make a covenant that I'll pay him $2,500 a month for the next 10 months, just to make the math easy. I pay payment one, still owe something to that covenant. After the 10th month, when I pay Josh the last $2,500 of that covenant, I didn't do away with it. I fulfilled it. How I many of Jesus came to pay a debt he did not owe? And to, come on, I owed a debt I could not pay. But how I many know when he said it is finished on Calvary's tree, he was saying the law can never make another legal demand on you because everything it requires, including death, has been exacted in the work of Calvary. Stamped it paid in full. Hallelujah, paid in full. Come on, and it rolled together like a great scroll. I, I, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And now if I, if, if 2000, and 19 years from now, I'm still making a payment to Josh for a truck that was paid for a long time ago. Somebody ought to slap me and say, what are you doing? That's the dumb and kingdom. But let me tell you what the American church is doing. We're trying to make payments on a covenant that was paid in full at Calvary's tree. And then Peter grabs a hold of that and he says this. But you're a chosen generation and a royal priesthood. And God restored the priesthood of the believer and said, now I want to have a relationship with every one of you. Hallelujah. I want you all to have access to me. You can draw near now with a true heart and full assurance of faith. You don't have to be afraid. I'm not an austere, vicious God with a club. I'm Abba. And you belong to me, and I've wanted to get to you so long, and you keep running from me. Somebody said, well, sin is, makes God leave you. It didn't make him leave Adam. As a matter of fact, he chased Adam out of the garden saying, where are you, Adam? I don't know if you all know this or not, but God is a stalker. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will follow you. Come on, somebody. He'll follow you to the house where you're buying your drugs and tap you on the shoulder and say, are you done yet? I still love you. And you're messing your life up. You think I want to send you to hell, but I'm trying to get you out of the hell you're creating right now. That's what I really came to do is to be your savior. He's like Forrest Gump. He'll take you back when all you got's one dying breath. But stupid is what stupid does. But how many know what could have happened to Jenny is she could have had unconditional love her whole life. And we're missing the point somehow of the gospel that he wants to love on us and give us the best life on the planet. We keep on sabotaging it because somebody told us we're not worthy. That's why women who are abused go back to men who abuse them and find the same kind of a man. It's because there's something in them that's never been tr totally dealt with that says I deserve this and it's my fault. I want you to know God has reconciled you 
you to himself, and you're valuable to him. Hallelujah. He, matter of fact, he thinks you're to die for. He thinks you're altogether love you. He presented you to himself 2,000 years ago without spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing that you could come near and draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith and stop running from him and start running to him. He just wants to spend time with you. Are you hearing where I'm coming from this morning? When they came up out of the river, or they came up out of the Red Sea, once again, exactly 50 days, after they were delivered from Egypt, God gave them the law. Exactly 50 days after the children, exactly 50 days after Jesus is crucified in the New Testament, He's identified as the real Lamb of God. Exactly 50 days later. Do you know what happened? And when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Do you know what Pentecost means? It means 50. Because Pentecost and the Feast of Pentecost started exactly 50 days after Passover. But this time, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, God comes down on the mountain in a cloud again. But this time, Pastor Josh, he don't give them rules on rocks. This time he gives them the Holy Ghost. And they start shundying and talking in tongues and get, come on, have a Holy Ghost party where they get drunk out of their minds and pass out in his arms. Y'all don't want to help me preach a little bit. You ever been to a charismatic service? I'm tell you, come on, somebody. Hallelujah. They were drunk, not as you suppose, but they were intoxicated. We had a lady one time. We, we, I coined a phrase in Ohio several years ago. I said, friends, don't let friends come to my meetings and drive. You might need to bring a sinner with you just so you can get home safe. <laughs> These two blue-haired ladies got so filled with the Holy Ghost, they were just drunk out of their mind. They were there on the floor just speaking in tongues, and we should have never let them get in the car to drive. And they started to drive home. A state trooper pulled them over. When he pulled them over, they're just laughing, giggling, and carrying on. And the pastor and I pulled over behind them trying to help these ladies. And this officer was going to arrest them uh, for driving under the influence. And, and the pastor said to this officer, these women are not drunk as you suppose. He said, well, I don't smell alcohol, but it is evident to me they're under the influence of something. <laughs> and the pastor said, well, I'm not going to deny that, but it's not a controlled substance because if you can control it, you ought to try it. <laughs> He said, they just left a minute. He said, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If you drive them home, I won't cite them. But I'm going to tell you, these ladies aren't fit to drive. So I coined a phrase, friends don't let friends come to my meetings and drive. And somebody said, well, I'll never do that. God probably just took that as a personal challenge. What you need is a good shot of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. You've been to our youth camps. You've seen folk get a good shot of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. And it takes sometime 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning to get them out of the building. They're just so full. Come on, somebody. I don't know about you, but I still believe in the power of the Holy Ghost. But what I want you to see is that God gave them the Holy Spirit 50 days after the true lamb was slain. Remember now, when they left Egypt, they came to the foot of Mount Sinai. 50 days later, God gives them the law. 3,000 people dropped dead. Acts chapter 2, exactly 50 days after Jesus is crucified, he gives them the Holy Ghost. And guess what? Exactly 3,000 people are added back to the church. Why is that? Because the letter kills, but in the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. He didn't come to kill. He came to make alive. Hallelujah. I am he that lives and was dead. Behold, I came to give you a life. Not just a ticket to heaven. Not just to get out of hell free card. I came to give you a life that's like the days of heaven on earth. That when you stand before God one day, he's going to high five you and say, I had a hoot living in your body. <laughs> Abundant life. That, listen, that's what. If you think I'm crazy, read what Jesus preached. It was the religious dudes that he was hard on. These lawyers that go, I thank God I'm not like that sinner. these guys who thought you had to earn and perform and get something, do something to receive this life. What I'm trying to tell you is you can't do anything to get this life, but once you get this life in you, it'll begin to produce a holiness. In other words, if you get the Holy Ghost, what I want you to see is if 50 days after they left Egypt, they got the law, and 50 days after they leave, come on, they leave the law of Moses, if you will, they get the Holy Ghost. Let me say that, let me calm down and say this as clear as I know how to, because this is probably the most important thing I'm going to say this morning. You might want to write this down. So that the Holy Ghost is to the new covenant what the law was to the old covenant. 
And the reason preachers won't preach what I'm preaching is because they don't believe the Holy Ghost can do what the Holy Ghost said he can do. But if the Holy Ghost can't make you behave, all the church sheriffs you want to hire aren't going to get the job done. Are you hearing where I'm coming from? But I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, not just to hookamashai, talk in tongues, and give you a Holy Ghost buzz. Thank God for that. But I've learned to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit inside of me. My pastor, y'all, I don't know if you've met. Lisa been here before? She's been here? She did. Yeah. My pastor is Lisa, and our young people say to her, well, is it, pastor, is it okay if I do this? And this is always her response. She said, it's okay with me if you can get it past the Holy Ghost. Now, I mean, sometimes you think you can get something past the Holy Ghost, but he's right there on your shoulder going, hey, yo, that's not who you are. Now, let me tell you, the Holy Ghost don't come to condemn you, but the Scripture says, Jesus said, I'm going to send you another comforter. There's two words in John 14, two Greek words for the same, what we translate pretty much the same word. He said, I won't leave you comfortless, and I will send you another comforter. The word comfortless is the Greek word orphanos. It is where we get our English word orphan. He said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you as your father. And that's the whole context of John 14. Me and my father are going to come, and we're going to take up our abode in you. Hallelujah. And we're going we're gonna to take our abode in you, and me and dad are going to come. And what we're going to do in the new covenant is we're going to move inside of you. You had to visit an old flapping tent in the Old Testament to find God in a location. Now God moves into you. And I love how the message Bible says this in Revelation 21. It says, in King James, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. But the message Bible says, Look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood. He's made his home in men. You might ought to touch your neighbor and say property values just went up. Because when God moves in the neighborhood, he starts a major renovation program. Say, God don't live in my neighborhood. I live in the projects. Well, you might ought to start a kingdom colony there. Because if you live there, God has moved into the neighborhood. He's made his home in men, and that's what's so glorious about this is God's not in an isolated, come on, cell behind a 10 by 10 curtain anymore. He lives and resides inside of us. The second word is, I will, I will send you another comforter. And the Greek word for comforter there is not orphanos. It's paraclete. And the word paraclete is a word for a defense attorney. So how many of the Holy Spirit, first of all, lets you know that you're not an orphan? It lets you know you're a son. I think one of the greatest deterrents for me in behavior is growing up knowing who's, who my daddy was and knew, knowing when I go to town, I'm representing my father. And I thought, you know, he would say to me, you're a house and houses don't act like that. Come on, somebody. How many of you belong to God and how many of there's some behaviors that are not becoming the saints? Am, am I talking all right? Hallelujah. And then the, but the, but the Holy Spirit comes and the scripture says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will be a paraclete. He will be your defense counsel. In other words, he's not the prosecuting attorney. And Jesus said, when he comes, he can only testify of me. He will bring to your remembrance everything I told you. And so here's how he works. I'll be messing up and I'll be, you know, I'll be doing stuff. And and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit will go, yo, Lynn, that's not who you are. Now, see, he doesn't tell me who I'm not. He just says, that's not who you are. You're the righteousness of God. You know how Paul dealt with sin at the dysfunctional church of Corinth? He comes back and says, let me stir up your pure mind. Let, let me put you in remembrance, remembrance of some things. Once you were darkness, that's who you used to be. That's not who you are. But now you are light. He said, what? Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? which is in you. And he said, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? In other words, the temple of God, God lives inside of you. And he reminds them of who they are, just like the Holy Spirit, the paraclete would. And he comes and reminds you of who you are. And the moment you, listen, the moment you believe what the Holy Spirit says about you, the moment you're going to act on that, because what you really believe, what you really believe is what you act on. So that whatever is not of faith in the new covenant is sin. And all sin flows from a mistaken identity. When you don't know who you are, come on. You'll do stuff. 
And so the issue is not, you know, I, I would say this to people. I, I'm trying to find a place here to land. Hallelujah. Wow, it's already after 12. People would come to me and say to me, when, especially when I was in a lot of that legalism, they said, well, what do you all believe? What do you all believe up at that church? Well, we don't believe women should cut their hair. We don't believe you should eat devil's food cake. We don't believe men should wear shorts. We don't believe you should go to the movies. We don't believe. We don't believe. We don't believe. And all of a sudden, while I'm telling somebody this, I'm thinking, you know what? I've sat in church my whole life and became an unbeliever. I got Bible for it. Galatians 3 said when the law is preached, it shuts up faith. And the less you believe. As a matter of fact, when they preached a lot of the sin consciousness, they made me not believe I was saved anymore. Now if you ask me what do I believe, I believe I'm the righteousness of God. I believe these are holy hands. I believe I'm a son or a daughter of God. Come on. I believe, come on somebody. And I started to realize that they never taught me anything to believe. But once I started to believe I was who God said I was, I began to operate in it. When I believed these were holy hands, I said, you know what? I think I can lay hands on the sick and they will recover because these are holy hands. Not just glow-in-the-dark preachers. God could care less about another glow-in-the-dark preacher. He wants to bring his people back into the true identity of who they are. And that's why he continues to speak to you and affirm who you are in the new covenant. Let me say this. I'm trying to find a place to circle here and land. In Hebrews, the 11th chapter, the Bible says that by faith Moses kept the Passover. By faith they left Egypt. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea. And he lists a whole lot of stuff that happens by faith. But the moment they crossed the Red Sea, and Hebrews 11, you can go home and read this text today. I'm not going to take the time because I'm just, I feel like I need to quit. He says, by faith, they kept the Passover. By faith, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, he kept the Passover. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea. The moment they crossed the Red Sea, nothing makes it in to the book of Hebrews, the great hall of faith, Hebrews 11, that happens by faith. Nothing makes it in for the next 40 years. It starts with the next verse. says, by faith, the harlot Rahab. I love the fact that he puts a harlot in there, and I'll just deal with that in a minute. Y'all awful quiet on me this morning. This is good news, I think, right? And I said, God, why does nothing make it into the hall of faith? That happened by faith after they crossed the Red Sea. He said, because after they crossed the Red Sea is where I gave the law. And Galatians chapter 3 says, when the law is preached, it shuts up faith. So nothing happened by faith for the next 40 years. 40 years later, God says to Dow, Moses, my servant is dead. Because Moses brings you out with a, with a rod, but Joshua, Yeshua is the Hebrew name Jesus, is going to bring you in with a mercy seat. And Joshua said, God, what's the strategy for bringing the children of Israel into Egypt? He said, you need to get them up to Jericho. You need to get three to six million people going in the same direction with their mouths shut. Now, that's the biggest miracle of the old covenant. Because they've been 40 years on a camping trip, and they don't even want to go camping. They are not happy campers. A couple of times Moses was ready to just say, or God, they got on God's last nerve. Get out the road, Moses, I'm going to kill them. Moses said, if you kill them, you've got to kill me too. And he was like a meteor. You hear what I'm saying? And hallelujah. These people weren't just the kind of people complained. It's hot out here. He stole my tent peg. Nobody shook my hand. I got sand in my shoes. They're like, we hate, we loathe, we despise this light bread. Say, what? Yeah, you're getting a miracle every morning. Angels are delivering your breakfast, and you got the audacity to say, not to this, I, I, I loathe. If you're complaining about angels delivering you manna, and the Bible said it had the taste of fresh oil and honeycomb. It was Krispy Kreme donuts, and it was good for you. <laughs> now, if you're going <laughs> you to complain about Krispy Kreme donuts that you can lose weight on and that are healthy, somebody got to slap you. That's all I got to say about that. I just discovered what it means when the light is on. And man, I, you know, I'm like a deer in the head, like, you know, the light is on at Krispy Kreme. Y'all got them down here? That means they're hot and fresh and ready. And, and six of them later, 
I got powdered sugar over me. It looks like I snorted cocaine. Well, hallelujah. We'll leave that be. I, I got to quit here. They come to Jericho, and God said, you've got to march around the walls. Tell them to keep their mouth shut. I said, God, why did you want them to keep their mouth shut? And he took me back again to the Romans chapter 2 and 3, and he said, I gave the law so that every mouth would be stopped and all the world would become guilty. What is the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to get every mouth to stop and to conclude all under sin so God can have mercy on all. That the end of the law is there's nobody that's making it on the basis of the law. There's none righteous, no not even one, not even Moses, the mediator of that covenant, made it in by the works of the law. So if you think you can do it and earn your salvation, knock yourself out. Because until you get wore out, I can't help you. But the moment you realize, I can't do this, I need a Savior, is the moment the law brought you to Christ where you begin to realize, now I need a Savior. Hallelujah. And once you get to the place where every mouth has been stopped, God said, now... When you hear a long, loud blast from a ram's horn. In other words, a ram's horn comes from the death of a male lamb. When you hear a message being preached through the death of Christ, then it's time to shout. And when you shout, the walls of Jericho will collapse and faith kick back in. They possess their promised land because the moment you start hearing a message from the finished work of Jesus Christ, your faith will come back and you'll become what I call, ready for this, a believer. Stand on your feet all over this building. I think it's interesting that he says, by faith, the harlot Rahab. You know, all she did is she believed, and that was it. She hung a scarlet-collared cord in her window so that every bit of light that filtered into her house came through that scarlet-collared cord of redemption. And I love it. This may not help you, but it helps me. I love it that God put not a glow-in-the-dark patriarch there, but a Gentile woman that ran the best little brothel in Jericho. I think he did that for the rest of us who realize we're not glow-in-the-dark saints. Maybe we all need some help, and if God could do it for her, he could sure do it for me. And you know what happens? Rahab is one of the only four or five women that make it into the lineage of Christ that's mentioned and, and the genealogy of Jesus. He doesn't mention the women, but he mentions four or five of them, and every one of the women he mentions that make it into the great hall of faith or into the lineage of Christ are all surrounded with scandal because Rahab ultimately became the great-great-grandmother of King David. I always wonder, why did the ten spies stop there first? Which one of them stayed too long? I'm not saying that's okay. Don't, don't misunderstand me a bit. Tamar is mentioned. She's the daughter-in-law of Judah. She makes it into the hall of faith. Tamar makes it. And the story of Tamar is that her husband dies and the brothers are supposed to raise up seed to her so that she has an inheritance. Because it was in those Hebrew culture, it was the men who had the inheritance. If you didn't have, if you wasn't. So if you didn't have a son or a child, you're out of the, you're out of the inheritance. But none of the brothers would raise up seed to this woman. And so she's, years go by, and the youngest one's way too young to marry. And she goes downtown and plays the harlot. And her father-in-law, Judah, shows up. Now, I don't know if he didn't know her very well, or she had an awful lot of makeup on. You're all quiet on me this morning. But she'd be like, hey. He'd be like, hey. He like, how much? She said, well, this much. He said, well, I don't have any money with me, but I'll gladly pay you on Tuesday. So he sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. He said, now here, she said, how do I know you're going to pay me? He said, I'll give you my staff. And when I come back, I'll pay you what I owe you. Now, the staff back in those days was like leaving your credit card there. 
It had identifiable markers. It was like a totem pole. Your family history's carved in these staff. That's why they would lean on their staff when they were dying and start to tell the story of the family history because it was written in their staff. Tamar craps up pregnant. So we're going to call Elder Deacon meeting and put her out to church. Oh, come on with me now. We're going to have to deal with this woman. We're going to put her out of the church. I, I can imagine how this elder deacon meeting went. She walks in and they're going to tell her, you are disqualified. You're worthless. Look how bad you are. And she pulls the staff out and she said, well, the man that owns this staff is my baby daddy. Elder deacon meeting over. Please hear me clear. I'm not saying it's all right to act anyway because there's repercussions to your actions. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that you can't mess up too bad. That God can't take your mess and turn it into a message. That he's the redeemer, not just of holy people, but he's the redeemer, come on, for the rest of us, if you will. And I had planned to go to another text in Corinthians, but Corinthians 3 says this for, and this is the, from the message Bible, says, for if the government of condemnation was glorious, talking about the old covenant, how about this government of affirmation? So the old covenant condemns you and the new covenant affirms you. The old covenant passes a sentence on you and a judgment, and the new covenant gives you a savior. Hallelujah. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Hallelujah. And they began to say, a heavenly host sing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to men. And if the government of affirmation is the government of Holy Spirit, then he comes to live inside of you. But the government of heaven then is not rules on rocks. The government of heaven is the indwelling Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Ghost can't make you holy, all the church sheriffs in the world you want to hire aren't going to help you. I hope this morning that you leave here and feel like you heard the gospel. And if you came in this room this morning, I feel like just taking a minute. I don't know what time you're normally used to getting out of, but I want to take a minute because I really went a different direction than I totally planned. But I feel like it's because the Lord wanted somebody to know in this room you're included. You haven't went too far that God can't get to you. And that he's not out to get you. He's out to save you. He's out to deliver you, and he has your best interest in mind. And from this pulpit to the door, all I can say is I need a Savior. I needed one, and I still need one because he's still saving me. Hallelujah. Salvation is not a one-shot deal. It is, come on, spirit, soul, and body. And I thank God that he's still saving me, but in the process, I'm not in and then out, and he loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He just takes you truly and honestly for the first time, just like you are. So all over this room this morning, if you come in this place this morning and you feel like your life has fallen apart and you're a wreck, I just want to say to you, first of all, these altars are open. I think it's okay to do that. Then you, If you feel like you need to respond to this, can we just take a minute and maybe sing something or play something? I don't know if you sing or not. Uh, William, but if we could just maybe just take a moment just to let people respond for a moment. I believe you can take your burdens to the Lord. You can leave them there. I believe we can lay down our heavy loads. Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Some of the burdens that we've carried are not necessarily burdens that we thought but the burdens of our self-help programs and our failures. I can cast my care on him because he cares for us. Hallelujah.
Put your arm around him or something, wherever you're at, and just let me pray, and I'm going to turn it back to Pastor Joshua. Hallelujah. I thank you this morning, God, hallelujah, that we're accepted in the beloved. That the blood is the most powerful thing. Not only on the planet, but in heaven and earth, and you even took your own blood into the most holy place into the heavens and sprinkled the testimony. And you put this new covenant in the ark of the testament in the heavens so that we couldn't get to it and break it. Hallelujah. And what a better covenant it is. So all over this room, Lord, I receive from you inheritance, the life of the coming age. I receive the forgiveness of sin. It's already been accomplished at the cross, but I receive it this morning. I receive my healing. I receive the Holy Ghost. I receive your blessing. I receive your favor, God. Come on, say, Lord, I receive right now. Hallelujah. I receive it, Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I receive your work in my life as I leave here today that transforms me. Not conforms me, but transforms me by the renewing of my mind. I repent, I turn from, but I turn toward the government of Holy Spirit. the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen. God bless you. Thank you.